This episode contains mentions of rape, murder, slavery, and incest. Objection? Okay, it has some hearsay as well. Old pirates are a bit tricky to fact check, and there's not much documentation. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, X Zala, and I know your dirty little secret, and I'm going to trade your info for cash and power. And I'm your other host, Trinzala, and I'm here to announce the World Domination Committee's current exclusive offer on passports to think freely. In the future, there will be no free thought unless you have one of our exclusive passports, which you can buy now for $5.99 USD. Today, we're going to be venturing on a historical journey on the high seas, but first, light feedback. Very light. So, episode 13 about Asami from Audition. I know it sounded like I was in a bathroom for half of the episode. You were and fine. I'll blame it on the pizza diarrhea. No. Uh, audio can be tricky, especially with the guests, so... We're getting better on it. We're learning, we're learning. What's if you have any time? tips on dealing with three microphones, let us know. We probably need to build a studio. Yes. Probably gotta move out of a closet. <laughs> I, I mean, I know it's like the whole premise of... Of, uh, of my comment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But we don't have to be in the closet. Fair. As podcasters. <laughs> fair, 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 fair. And also, surprisingly enough... Our own World Domination Committee was ranked. Now, we of course should have been number one, but we will gladly accept number 10 in the top 20 villain podcast on Feedspot. Thank you very much for the selection. I mean, I won't gladly accept number 10. I want to be number one, so help us get there, dear listeners. All according to Gekoku. <laughs> Yeah, we weren't lying. That light feedback, that's all we have. Yeah. If you do know someone that's on the board of Feedspot who would like to join our council so we can have influence over this villain list, please do send us some correspondence. Committee at worlddomination.ca Alright, well, that was very light feedback, so let's get into today's villain. Today we are covering Zhang Yitzhou, the most successful and yet least talked about pirate. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. When you, like, look up things about her online, you get, like, a lot of articles and whatnot, but you don't get as much first-hand accounts, I guess, because it was a bit tricky to document. Yeah, we're talking 1800s. But she was badass. Yeah. So, Zhang Yiso, also known as Shi Yang, formerly known as Qing Shi, was a Chinese pirate leader who plundered the South China Sea in the early 19th century. And she was so much of a badass that by the end of her career, she would actually get an aristocratic title, even though she was from low birth. And that aristocratic title would be Madame Jean. 
or madam lady, or lady or lady. So I think for like this podcast, it's probably just going to be easier and probably respectful for us to just call her Lady Jean. Exactly. So Lady Jean earned her own title by fighting against the British Navy, the Portuguese Navy, and the Chinese navies. That's a lot of navies to fight against. That's a lot of navies to fight against, especially if all of them are teamed up together at the same time in the 1700s. And you're just a pirate, like, that basically comes from nowhere and to, like, creates an empire. Exactly. It's super impressive. And the reason she gets into the situation is because she's so prolific and infamous by causing, like, all this terror along the, like, the coast of southern China, like the South China Sea, where thousands of civilians are, like, robbed, murdered, pillaged, sold into slavery, human trafficking. Um, and, like, she almost sets up a sort of quasi-state inside of, like, this ocean territory in the South China Sea. Yeah, the sea. Pirate Confederacy. So much so that it challenges the statehood of other nation-state actors in the area. To the point where she's handing out passports at some point. <laughs> As you mentioned in your intro, yeah. Yeah. So how did you discover Zhang Yitzhou, Lady Zhang? I had never heard of her before you being like, hey, we should cover her. I think I discovered her on an episode of Extra Credits, which is the YouTube series. Ever I iconic. Oh, so good. It's so good. Just, you know, kind of like one of those things where I put on in the background while I'm working and then I'm like, oh, I haven't heard about this. This is an amazing story. And then, you know, just be like, go and look all those things up. And I'm like, why is this not as prolific? And then fall down the rabbit hole from there. So we're going to take you along with us. Today's sources, which we'll link in the doobly-doo, are Zhang Yitzhou, the article by Mark Cartwright, Zhang Yitzhou, the most successful pirate in history, the mini documentary by Emma Nagus, Queens of the High Seas, uh, from Overheard at National Geographic Podcast, A Chinese Woman Led the Largest and Most Successful Pirate Fleet in History by Blake Stilwell, Zhang Yitzhou, panel by the Royal Museum's Greenwich, Episode 174, The Pirate Queen Zhang Yitzhou uh, by Teacup Media, Jingxi, The Pirate Widow Menace of the South China Sea by Biographics. It's like the YouTube video of it, uh, with a primary source kind of mixed into the works, this is kind of a primary source, but like a correction of a translation. It gets really sort of messy. So this is kind of like the correct translation. So I would say it's still a primary source. And it's the further statements of the Ladrones on the coast of China intended as a continuation of the accounts published by Mr. Dariapu. <laughs> and a very short amount of sources for today. Yes. All right, well, you ready to get into it? Yeah. Let's go sailing. Let's go blunder stories. Yeah. Well, we're going to start this off with a, a little quote. How's about? Okay, give it to me. Of marauding men at sea, many books have told the tale, but of all the pirates in the world, the most fearsome were female. Ooh. From Pirate Queens, Dauntless Women Who Dared Rule the High Seas by Lee Lewis. So, Sirens. today's villain, our siren, some may see her as a protagonist, some may see her as just the pirate queen, Lady Zhang. a villain. 
Lady Zheng was born around 1775 as Xiyang in Guangdong, or modern Canton coastal region of China, during a time of extreme civil unrest and wealth inequality. It was basically anarchical because <laughs> the place where she grew up, it was kind of in a warring area. So, like, a lot of the land was ravished, destroyed, maybe poor um, crop yields. It was not the most lavish place. Right. So to speak. And like, a lot of the poor families during this time had to kind of survive, basically, famine and disease by smuggling illicit goods or doing some side hustles yeah it was or... called part-time piracy which is kind of funny like yeah not a gig economy not a full-time you you're a part-time pirate and not only was that because this period was in a lot of civil unrest and there was wealth inequality but also in this region most of the industry was based on fishing which could only happen in winter time so half of the year you get your bag by fishing the other half of the year you're kind of shit out of luck so what do you do you turn to crime <laughs> right i mean it's kind of like the vikings having kind of a farming time Maybe a fishing time and then... Pillaging time. Right. Just seasonal work. And eventually, because of various uprisings in the region, piracy became more and more full-time. Yeah. As things continued to drag out between what was like the Qing Dynasty and uh, Vietnam at the time, there was so many like sides and so many betrayals and going back and forth that... Basically, everyone kind of started just, like, looking out for themselves, and piracy became rampant, and mm -hmm. they were just, like, one side would hire, like, hire pirates to go pirate the other side <laughs> of, like, Vietnam, and, like, the Vietnam government was like, this is going horribly, and, like, hire pirates to go, like, get the other side, and so, like, the only people winning in this thing were, like, the pirates, like, the civilians not having a great time. Well, I would say that wasn't even winning, like, there was no real collaboration going on by anyone, so everybody was getting fucked. Oh, no, actually, I think it would turn in favor uh, for our villain today, Lady Zhang, and her eventual husband, actually. This because this will be the turning point for their big arc into villainy. Yeah. So, 1801, we don't know much about Lady Zhang's um, childhood, essentially, but we know that she came from this background, she came of age in this tumultuous time period and she started out working as a sex worker before even like becoming a full-fledged pirate she grew up on the seas and she started working on the seas yeah and she was born into a kind of like a crime family and certain like welcome to the crime family babe Families kind of tended to operate in a sort of like job position and she just happened to kind of be born into the side that wasn't like kind of like the shadier kind of career. Well, I think you also learned that she was born into basically like uh, not a race per se, but like a culture, a small culture of these people that were like fully operational on the water. They knew how to traverse the seaways and the, like their entire upbringing was on the water yeah she came from this ethnic background of the boat people specifically the boat people of canton 
who specialized in a class of sex worker, which basically operated inside of boats in Canton's Pearl River, which kind of functioned as, like, the brothel go-to. I heard a joke where it's like, oh yeah, our job is to float people's boats. That's pretty good. Or, wait, 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 I got it better, I got it better. Or is their job to acquire semen? Oh, gross, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) speaking of which... What was kind of unique about this class of sex worker is that in the region, they were unique in not practicing foot binding, and they had a dialect that was entirely unique to their own. And I think this kind of comes to an advantage for Lady Zhang at, like, as she grows up to become a pirate, basically. Oh, absolutely. And not only that, but she is a water native, because specifically in this kind of culture... The women are forbidden for marrying land-dwelling uh, Chinese people. Never liked a landlubber anyway. <laughs> or uh, live on the land. So literally born on a boat, lives on a boat. Works on a boat. Works yeah. on a boat. She was made to be a pirate, basically. <laughs> yes, she was born to do this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And these boat people from Canton, they originally kind of lived in southern China. Um, but they were basically kicked out by the Cantonese and forced to live in the water and not go onto land. So it's almost like their refuge is on the water where they escaped and like that is now their permanent home. Yeah, and that really shapes the culture and what they do with their lives. Absolutely. So as we mentioned, Lady Zhang worked on floating brothels. She grew up on the water. She worked there. And eventually she started making her trade more on information kind of like when we talked about walpole in episode two trading secrets trading information she had a lot of loose-lipped clients where she would gain information from them and be able to sell it for cash essentially oh so like facebook yeah yeah she was the facebook of her day yeah exactly and um at this time of turmoil, I think this is kind of where she begins to cross your threshold. Like, there are a few threshold points as, as part of her journey, but I think when she starts getting clever, like, oh, I can do more than work on this boat as a sex worker, I can start being a broker of information. She takes it from, like, a really entrepreneurial standpoint in a way. Yeah. And I think also part of her threshold is really that she sees the lack of of law around her. Yeah, it's anarchy. It is absolute anarchy. The government doesn't have the resources to enforce law and order, so it's become own, like, it has its own law and order to it based off of, like, local landlord, or, like, local warlords. Yeah. Um, It's just generally chaos, and she, like, probably sees, like, really despicable things, especially being uh, working inside of a brothel, of course. I mean, and I think she kind of takes inspiration from what she sees and how she will govern and rule Mm -hmm. the pirate confederacy later. Exactly. Oh, spoilers. (laughs) I also think that uh, another part of this threshold would be that the boat people can are also can be discriminated against in this area. And especially since she is from one of the like four prominent crime families at the time, she's probably kind of like looked down upon and like, Going through the underworld is basically the only path she has. And so with someone with talent like that, 
that's obviously going to just shoot up through the ranks in whatever direction it's pointed in. And if that's the only direction she can go, that's going to be the way that she's going to rise. She's almost born into villainy and she has no choice but to succeed in it. But she finds, yeah, she finds a workaround from being like, I guess, just a petty criminal to being the biggest and best, essentially. Mm -hmm. Well, in her line of work, she happened to meet a famous pirate named Jung-hee, who she ended up marrying. This is kind of, there's some speculation about how they actually met, but this is basically one of the turning points for her working her way up and out. And there's probably like three or four different stories about how this happened. There's likely more, yeah. Um, a lot of it has been kind of mythologized. Because a lot of this is legend and like a lot of the existing stuff we have. This is all kind of hearsay and this will kind of happen a lot because on the Chinese side of things, we don't really have that much record keeping about uh, Lady Zhang. Uh, just because like, I guess they didn't want to talk about her. And on the other side, we just have a bunch of British guys. Bitching and moaning about how bad she was. Yeah, just bitching and moaning about, like, I can't understand what they're saying, but I don't want to die. Please send me back to my people. To be fair, there's also the more modern, like, Western interpretations of her, where she's kind of, like, glorified as a badass, which, to be fair, you know, we, we could have that perspective as well. Um, but, you know, varying interpretations of how she met this pirate... Uh, one was that he was her client, and... We hear she was really good, by the way. Like, she wasn't just any sex worker. She was a courtesan. Mm-hmm. Another potential was that she was kidnapped by him, or that she propositioned him, oh, let's get married so we can make a business deal, essentially. Mm-hmm. With probably the most likely story that the brothel was probably raided uh, by Zhang Yi, and she happened to be one of the captives that uh, he potentially bought, purchased, or perhaps just made a deal with as they would come up to make their rules later. Mm -hmm. So it's more likely that she was kidnapped, but yeah, seems so. It seems just kind of like how this is how this kind of thing goes on the waterways back in the day. Well, yeah, and that's how they got their first kid, essentially, too, or theoretically. Yeah, it's like, you need a family member, just go take one from that boat over there. That's the kind of thing we're we're doing over here. You know, your husband that kidnapped you can't father a child, let's just go steal one. And basically, make him into a weird throuple. It's highly implicated that this the quote-unquote son that they kidnap is, like, their third lover as well. Well, yeah, so... What we know for certain was that Cheng Pao, who is this adoptive son that we're talking about, was essentially Pirate Jung's protege. Like, he was baby pirate, but also ex-lover. They, Lady Zhang and Zhang Yi get together, and then they go, okay, we're gonna adopt Cheng Pao. He's gonna be our kid. And that we fuck. Then, yeah, yeah, so <laughs> we said incense... <laughs> We said incest hearsay at the beginning, but I mean, it's not blood related, but it's a very weird situation. It's very bizarre. Just like, like 15 year old, just like in a fishing village, just yoink. You're ours now. Yep. So bizarre. So in 1805, the Zhongs sealed the deal and unified their marriage. 
And they also happen to unify the coastal plunderers in this area. So, as we mentioned, Zheng Yi was a notorious pirate. Lady Zheng was the information broker and was made for the seas. So together, they were able to unify various clans in this region and start fostering more of a collaboration. They started this kind of contract with all of the other petty criminals slash pirates in the region and kind of made it a professional thing. It's no longer part-time piracy. It's no longer just anarchical. We're going to start working together and strategizing. Absolutely. And I think it's because of what we mentioned earlier with all of the chaos going on in uh, the Vietnam, Qing, uh, China kind of border is why we have so many different pirates. No one knows what side they're on. There's utter chaos. This power couple of uh, Lady Zhang and uh, Zheng Yi uh, basically come together and then they kind of go around and use their charisma and sway to basically and information huh and information and information to basically convince the other pirates like hey we're basically following the orders of either the vietnam government or the chinese government or like all these other governments how about you know if we all banded together we would be bigger than all of their navies and so they kind of like leave this information going on to people's heads so that Eventually, they slowly weave together a confederation of the South China Sea pirates. That's step one to dominating the world. Absolutely. So they have six divisions with these kind of ships that are like junks, which junks are a special type of ship that's mostly seen in the South China Sea. And it has its own kind of advantages of being very shallow. Anyway. Yeah, it can travel in shallow water. It can carry a lot of cannons, a lot of cargo, a lot of people while being fast and efficient. And you can really just kind of accessorize it really easily. I mean, that's why it's called like a junk ship. Like you can just like add junk onto it. Like it's there for anything. You can turn it like fast, make it fast, make it big, the whole things. I think in uh, Lady Zhang's ship, she actually had like a giant um, statue, if I remember correctly. (laughs) That was like of uh, some type of idol. Anyway, either that or was that that was uh, their son. One of them did. One of them had just like a giant statue, kind of like in, if you ever seen Black Lagoon, they have like a giant Buddha when uh, on in the Bar island. Yeah. yeah, 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 kind of like that, but on a ship. So that's a testament to like how sturdy the junks were, but also how like versatile they were. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a diversion. But like you said, the South China Sea was separated into six sections for the pirates to kind of stake their claim on, but in a collaborative way. In fact, this pirate confederation within two years had 600 ships and 40,000 pirates, part of it. That was basically organized into different fleets, the six divisions, with all their own different colors. With specifically the leaders being Zhang Yi and Lei Zhang being inside of the Red Fleet. And that was kind of the biggest fleet. So also when they were kind of convincing everyone with their charm, their charisma, their information and whatnot. You're also probably doing like a little bit of like a, hey, join or be destroyed kind of deal. So not only was it advantageous for them to become like part of this pirate confederation, but also... They didn't want to, like, you know, risk anything for not joining, like, the Confederation. And, like, once it was all to kind of, like, together, they would attack ships all the way from, like, Hong Kong to Vietnam, as well as, like, 
any foreign ship carrying valuable cargo. It was open season and no one could challenge their authority. And I think that's where kind of the temptations and motivations start to come into play as part of Lady Zhang's arc. I mean, growing up in her situation, I think there's always maybe been like a want for money and power, but also having this fleet now and having the accessibility to start like going after ships carrying cargo, they started seeing some nice spoils. The pirate confederations would pillage these foreign cargo ships for goods such as gold, silk, spices, silvers, you know, porcelain, tea, cotton, yada yada, and they would start reselling these to merchants on the coast. These were valuable goods that people didn't have access to, and now we're able to get them. Imports, exports, don't you know? They also started looting and extorting some of these coastal towns, basically being like, hey, don't you want protection from these foreign armadas? Well, you can't do it yourself. I have these 40,000 men that can protect you, so just give us a little cash money and uh, we'll keep you safe. Okay, to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, though, when Lady Zhang was growing up, there was basically anarchy. Mm-hmm. Now, one way to not have anarchy <laughs> is to have a monopoly of violence. Yeah, or also paying for bodyguards in a way. Paying for bodyguards <laughs> in a way. And then, you know, racketeering or just asking for protection, it's just kind of like taxes. <laughs> if you really think about it, she's just making a government from nothing. That's very true. That's true. I mean, yeah, I mean... Call it thievery or call it taxes. At the end of the day, it's the same thing. And someone has to pay for the guns. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, just to play devil's advocate. A no, you're bit, not wrong. It, it's you're not, not just for the spoils wrong. and riches. I, I do think legitimately somewhere deep in her heart, she just wants law and order. And the money, the cash flow it, and the guns. Just helps enforce it. Yeah, that's just a mechanism to enforce the law and order. Yeah. So from one end, law and order. From another side, the European perspective, they saw this area. They want to take all shit. Yeah. <laughs> and the, they saw the area and the pirates that haunted it. They called them ladrones, meaning thieves or brigands. So thieves or brigands or just some bodyguards or governmental figures. Yeah. And it, either way you take it, there's kind of... A relevation or death here in our story when in 1807, Zhang Yi is like out of nowhere, just smited, just in some storm or like by a cannonball or typhoon. I don't know. It's kind of like wiped under the rug. Yeah. Maybe, maybe his son, uh, what's his son's name again? Bao. Bao. Maybe Bao just gave him an ass fucking, it's just a little <laughs> too hard and they didn't want to write that down. I think that's hearsay. <laughs> That is definitely hearsay, but you know, likely, likely, what kind of storm, what kind of storm, semen. Um, <laughs> so initially, there's kind of like a fear that like, you know, like, oh shit, like the main, like- Our captain is fucking dead. Our main male, like, guy that's running this shit, like, back in 1790s, like, early 1800s, I think it's the early 1800s yeah. by this point. Yeah. I think it's like- 1802 or 1806 he died in 1807 yeah oh right i just said that anyway um so they're like the confederation's like okay are we all just gonna have like a civil war 
disband? Like, what's going to happen here? And, like, Lady Zhang immediately starts, like, going into, like, game mode. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one could theorize she's been waiting for this moment, in a way. I I think it's safe to assume that she... She planned that something would go awry and knew that she would need to leverage the situation for her sake. She probably knew that she couldn't take power alone, so she ended up getting together with her dead husband's protege and adopted son, Chang Pao, and he was promoted to being the second in command of the Red Flag Fleet, and the basically the chieftains from the late Zhang Yi appointed her as co-captain. Yeah, which is surprising, but actually more acceptable in some of these underground societies at the time. It's- yeah, there were like ladies in positions of power. They're not talked about as much, but they did exist. And so she kind of knew how to game the system so she could be one of them. And it, everybody supported that, basically. Now, and I think this is really where she like tends to shine because she's able to step so quickly and prevent a crisis from happening here. Like, so could have easily turned this into like a nothing story of pirates rise up, disband. Like, that's just how the world turns. But she really creates this plot line of epicness because the entire time behind the scenes before Zhang Yi died, she was really the brains of the operation, and everyone really knew it. She ran the business, she did the organization, and really he did the pillaging part. <laughs> he did the warfare part, like the beating the shit out of people part, and then she did like all of like the, okay, we're going to make this deal with this person. The information gathering, the organizing. Right, so as soon as like he's out of the picture, she's like ready to go. She has Plan Z already like <laughs> filled into the slot. She has... Plan ZA. <laughs> contingencies upon contingencies. Wheels within wheels. As Lady Zhang came into her own, I think it's safe to wonder, how could you be so organized? I mean, at least for me, it's hard enough herding two cats. So imagine almost 50,000 people and pirates at that. Actually, it sounds kind of easier. I, I have two cats as well. It's, <laughs> it's pretty difficult. So... We already mentioned that she was very organized and meticulous, and she actually put a bunch of records in place, specifically for what they were stealing and how to distribute it amongst pirates so things wouldn't fall into anarchy. She also implemented a tax system, but we'll get into that a little bit more later. See? See? Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, and in pirate life, like, Laws of codes are not uncommon, but I think she actually introduced a very fair system to this very large fleet that could be flexible, but strict enough to keep everyone in line in just the perfect balance and kind of create an honor kind of system. Yeah, inside honor of amongst it. thieves. And they agreed with it too. Like they're like, okay, this is rational. And for the most part, actually, like the, the pirate code that she established is pretty rational. It's almost like a very functional corporation constitution. Yep. It's like a constitution for a corporation or like a white paper for how a business will operate. It's very simple, elegant, and powerful. In a way, this kind of reminds me of um, episode five Dutch 
from Red Dead Redemption, he had like a little bit of a system as well with his vagabond cult before it all fell to shit, but well, Lady Chung did it way better. Way, way, way better. Dutch thought he was hot shit managing 20 people. <laughs> Try 50k. Yeah. Oh, and it, it only gets bigger, too. Absolutely bigger. And the rules scale absolutely the entire way. They never falter, actually. Do you want to get into what these yeah. codes were? Yeah, sure. Before we get into it, um, I guess we should preface that a lot of the primary rules, which is the first three rules, are actually attributed to Zheng Yi, not Zheng Yi Zhao. However, I mean, when you hear them, it's like, who really came up with the rules? You know what I mean? Anyway, so let's just dive straight in. So, like, rule one, if any pirate goes privately on shore, he shall, he shall be taken, his ears mutilated, and he will be paraded around the fleet and then executed. This is basically to make sure that once you're a pirate, you stay loyal, you don't get betrayed. Uh, when they go offshore, they don't give away information, they don't get impressed into another fleet, so it prevents, like, the black fleet from flying with the red fleet or the yellow fleet. Or I also would think, like, the Portuguese fleets right. prevents them from taking the pirates. The second rule was essentially that you shouldn't take anything privately from any stolen or plundered goods. She had the registration system in place, so anything that you took, you had to basically document somewhere, and you were allowed to take basically one-fifth of these goods after registration, but the rest of it would go into the storehouse, essentially, the general fund, and anyone who would steal from the general fund would be killed. Right, and stealing could also be, like, lying. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that totally makes sense, like... If it's a collaborative effort, you don't want people to be going willy-nilly, then you fall back into anarchy. And you also have a system, so with piracy, it's kind of like fishing or hunting. You're not always successful. Mm -hmm. So with a shared fund, you could have a more stable employment, so to speak. Right. If you were like a part of the crew or like the pirate thing. So if you like go out there... And you're just not that good at pirating. At least, you know, you probably will still get some rice. Yeah, exactly. It's like UBI. <laughs> yeah. And then the third one, which makes you kind of question the origin uh, of these, like, rules or if all of the influence came from Zheng Yi. And the third rule is basically that any woman captured from a village shouldn't be harmed or harassed. And that all of, like, the women that are captive are to be registered uh, with their place of origin recorded and then given separate quarters. And anyone who, like, rapes them or, like, sexually assaults them or do anything like that um, shall be, like, executed. I think this is probably a direct influence from Lady Zhang's work in the brothels. Like, she probably saw some horrible shit happen and was like, yeah, we may be kidnapping people and stuff, but I don't want them to go through this. Speculation. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, a lot of the sources that I was looking at also went further with this, in that if, like, any of the pirates even had, like, consensual sex with the captured women, then both of them could be killed mm -hmm. for the incident. And, like, the only way that this could be, like, an acceptable arrangement was that if the pirate basically bought the women because they were still in the business of human trafficking uh -huh. these women and also if you're ugly you got away like the only time it's like super <sighs> advantageous which is like 
crazy. It's like, like, I don't know how I would feel if I was, if a pirate came to my village and then was all like, like going around, like, like looking for like slaves to pick. And then like looked at me and like, mm, too ugly. I'd be like, oh my. I'm safe, but oh, my self-esteem. Oh, my soul. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure they had bigger problems to worry about than am I pretty enough? I know, but yeah. you, you would have to think, like, right before you die, be like, really? Like, the, <laughs> that would flash before your face. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You'd be like, oh, this could have gone so much earlier. I, I'd be confused. <laughs> just to say the least. Anyway, off of that, um, you could still buy these women. And if you were to buy these women, um, then you would have to marry them. And you could not cheat on them or... Go outside of respects. You had to treat them like proper wife material. Hmm. Otherwise, you know, decapitation. Off with your head. Mm-hmm. So it had a lot of like pretty good standards for setting up kind of uh, family dynamics and family units. I mean, aside from the human trafficking aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. And I bet the cheating probably it, like helped cut down on like a lot of like, oh, yellow fleets commanders wives sleeping with blue fleet commanders yeah like you know none of that goes down nearly as much because anyone caught doing some like unscrupulous shit like that gets like you know decapitated there were also a couple other commands that were not like part of the core three pirate codes but they kind of helped shape the uh the governance essentially of these fleets uh, one of which anyone caught giving commands on your own or disobeying would be immediately decapitated. It seemed to be pretty popular punishment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Decapitation, losing ears, whipping, flogging, drownings, you know, the, the standards. The works. Um, I think we already kind of touched on it, but if you're pilfering from this general fund you're or stealing from villagers too, uh, that's a capital offense against the pirates. Specifically, you could steal from any villagers, but if they had already paid for, like, a passport, which we'll get into the passport mm-hmm. system, how that all worked. Basically, if, like, they paid for protection and you stole from them anyway, because, like... You broke the code. Yeah, you broke the code. Like, we had a deal. Speaking of that, um, every pirate was also... It was a very low-trust kind of system, so they didn't have any of, like, their goods. Like, they couldn't keep any of them when it came to inspection. So they had to, like, give it all up, and then it had to be, like, handed back Yeah, to it's them. part of that registration distribution process that was in, uh, like, what was that, rule number two? Yeah. Right, right. It's just, like, an addendum, like, clarifying. Yeah, and they had to be registered and distributed by the fleet leader, specifically. Mm-hmm. So Lady Zheng and her late husband, Zheng Yi, put these rules in place. And after his death, she continued his trend of this fleet expansion. And I think this kind of comes to her rebirth transformation point in the villain's arc. She continued accumulating more and more ships, more and more of these junks, and also gathering more pirates to to the point that at the end of 1807, this confederation had expanded from 40 to 70,000 pirates. So just to put that into comparison... I would say that Blackbeard had a pretty, pretty admirable fleet of about three. <laughs> um, and you know, Lady Zhang over here just casually with an entire fucking navy. <laughs> you know. But you really only hear more about Blackbeard, which is right. Striking. I think he's just more unhinged. It, yeah, uh, probably. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think for some reason, 
the sex worker aspect turns a lot of people off from uh, portraying it in media, which is such a shame because she really, like, utilized it to her advantage. Yeah, I think you had mentioned earlier, like, oh, you don't hear, like, Disney-fied story. Like, there's no Pirates of the Caribbean about her, probably because she got her start working in those floating brothels. Whereas, like, oh, well, we can teach little boys about the, the rapes and pillages of Blackbeard and stuff. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no teaching double them standards will never turn into a problem. <laughs> Lady Zhang expands these fleets, and they continue basically taking over... Th- all of the cargo ships that are coming into this area. We already mentioned a little bit how they did this with the junks, the huge cannons, able to go into shallow waters. But they also had various other strategies for attack and conquer. And after, like, kind of these attacks, pirates would steal the cargo, but in the kind of roundabout way. And they would kind of operate as, like, normal pirates would. Kind of like, you know, give us all your shit. The lootings and the pillagings. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the captain now, kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and if they opposed them, then they would be captured, tortured, executed. This is pretty standard stuff, especially back in the ancient day. Like, if a conqueror came to your city, and you're like, hey, pay taxes to me. And they're like, okay. And then like, the conqueror should be like, all right. And then they just keep going. But then, like, if you fought back, they'd be like, all right, burn everything they love. Yeah. So, it's kind of... The same thing. It's part for the course for pirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just standard business. And I thought it was pretty interesting because we can kind of get into it like a little bit later, but they weren't actually necessarily interested in just the cargo, maybe initially at first, but they have more of a roundabout, nefarious way of actually getting what they really want out of these ships. And I think that's pretty, like, interesting. But of this kind of standard pirate stuff, it's still pretty horrifying to like normal people, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Yes, yeah. for sure. I would not want to be a captive on these ships. I know there's this guy on YouTube named Larry Lawton who used to uh, rob banks. Rob banks. He used to rob jewelry stores for, uh, I guess, a living. And uh, he said that the only thing he like really regrets is the kind of like fear and trauma he probably put into people when he was like robbing places. Hmm. And you can kind of get a sense of that since a lot of the sources we actually have about how the pirates operated actually come from English and uh, Portuguese accounts and stories of captivity of prisoners of this kind of pirate confederacy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them just kind of seem to be bitchy. I don't know about being a prisoner. I mean, I would be bitchy if I was kept in a rat infested ship forced to eat caterpillars but they also give them rice at least true true maybe you wouldn't be able to stretch out your legs as the rats nod on you and like disease and sickness but you at least got some rice and caterpillars well they also have the option to join the pirate fleets or be flogged to death so like i I mean worst case scenario you're dead best case scenario you're a pirate for a little bit i guess yeah yeah and a lot of them were also, like, ransomed away, so there's, like, hope of being, like, safety, at least. There's actually a good account, so in some of more of our, like, primary sources today, there's a first mate's account of basically, like, becoming a prisoner, and his experience is as a prisoner. And I'll just kind of, like, summarize and kind of goes through real fast. To give the scope of some of the, the piracy villainy. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's too bad, but I think I'm just desensitized. <laughs> I, I think I've watched too many horror movies. 
I, I've conquered too many worlds. Anyway, so it's basically this English guy. His name is Jay Turner. We also have accounts of a man named Robert Glasspool, and I think you hear a lot more about him in the sources, but I actually kind of like hearing more of Jay Turner's story. I think it's a little bit longer. It's not necessarily as dramatic since he gets more of a normal treatment than what Robert Glasspool gets. He kind of gets like a privileged prisoner treatment. That sounds kind of weird and bizarre, but he does because he's, I guess he has the ear of some important people in England. Anyway, Jay Turner, the first mate who gets captured, is a lot more interesting in the story. So basically, he starts with a story saying that he's, you know, taking goods from one place to another. I think it's salt or something like that, something to that effect. And basically, there are these officials that have to come on board to inspect the goods, make sure that they pay their taxes, like do all that normal stuff. And they're like, okay, cool, this is a normal thing. And then all of a sudden, as they're inspecting it, they just like go, surprise, motherfucker. And uh, they're like, yep, we're pirates. Hi, we're, we, we're already in every part of your ship. Um, thanks for opening the front door, no by escape. the way. <laughs> yeah, there is no escape. I'm the captain, though. And then all of their like weapons are taken, and he's taken, and they take the ship. And basically, they, they go, okay. And they like whip him, beat him, do the normal stuff. Take him, chain him up, and they have a guy that kind of speaks English, but like really broken English. And so he's just talking to this translator, barely can talk English to him. And like all these guys are yelling at this translator, and the translator's looking at him, and like the translator's just kind of speaking brokenly to him. Like they say, if your people don't give us money, kill. And he's like, what? No. And he freaks out about this like every other paragraph. He's like, they keep threatening to kill me. And he keeps getting terrified of it. I mean... Did you not expect this of pirates? Did you, yeah, did you not expect that, like, th this is par for the course? I feel like this is standard in ransom stuff. Like, yeah. hey, don't try any funny business. I, I, I could kill you. And normally, you'd be like, okay, you're being a little too harsh on this guy. This goes on for months. I don't know. I feel like after the third month, like, they'd be all like, hey, we're going to kill you. would be like, haha, good one. Like, I think Julius Caesar has, like, a really... Actually, good story. When he was about 26-ish, he got captured by pirates over on the Mediterranean side. And um, they had him locked up in a cave. And he wrote some poetry. Um, and he, like, read the poetry. And he was like, hey, I'm going to come back and hang you all because you kidnapped me and forced me into a cave. And they're like, good one, Caesar. And then uh, a year later, he came back and hung them all. So, this guy was being just a total bitch. <laughs> um, that's just my theory on the entire piece. But to have some bad experiences, he did witness a guy who did try to get away and did try to like get out and like do the things he was not supposed to do, or maybe was just not afraid of the broken English death threats. He got basically on top of like the main deck and nails were nailed into the ship. And then he was beaten until he was vomiting blood. Like beaten over the nails? Well, no, just kind of, like, like beat in the face, but, like, he was nailed to the floor, so he, like, he fell down oh. and, like, break, like, you know. Mm -hmm. And, like, so he was all kind of, like, twisted together and whatnot, and then after, like, he couldn't take any more, and he's kind of, like, on the verge of death, that's when they basically undid the nails, and they took him off to an island, and they come up and made him into dinner. I mean, pretty effective. I would say it's a pretty good meal. Better than just rice and caterpillar. <laughs> Absolutely. 
that's one instance, and that's pretty bad. But other than that, it's mostly that he's just kind of cramped at night from sleeping. And the his ransom price keeps going up. But I really just think it's he, like, he's so annoying. They're all like, no, you're not worth 3000 anymore. You're worth 6000 now. And they kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And then it kind of explains an interesting thing when they finally arrive on some settlement after he makes friends with another captive who is from another country, but they both kind of speak English to each other, but not but well, but he can kind of speak to the weird translator and they're all speaking in broken languages. It's really interesting. Anyway, it's a great long story, but it concludes with uh, basically the ransom, like the two like fleets meet each other like end to end. And they send out like a tiny ship with the money on it, and uh, basically they send out a tiny ship with the like the prisoners on it. And then one of the pirates comes out of nowhere, takes the goods, and then another pirate thing comes out and points guns at the prisoners. And then they inspect the goods, and if the goods are good to go, the people with guns kind of back off the prisoners. They take the like the treasure and they go and hide it in their own little places. Deal's done. British guy is out of his prisonerhood and I guess he's traumatized for life and writes a very eloquent book chapter on it and uh, gets rich and famous in England. So, not a bad deal overall. I, I think he had a happy ending in yeah, a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's much better than uh, being a a victim of a petio. Yeah, no? fair. Fair. That's one account, though, but it sounds like most of the the hostage taking at least from the europeans perspective was like this is uncomfortable this sucks they get out okay though yeah it kind of sounds like more like it's business oriented overall they do sound like they do kill people whose ransom doesn't come but it doesn't sound personal or like sadist or like evil or like some weird type of belief it just sounds like we just want the money at the end of the day yeah so as Lady Zhang continues to settle into her role, establishing these rules, kind of doing the typical pirate thing, she starts turning her attention specifically to the salt trade, not just getting silks and stuff. The salt was more important in Wongong. Yeah, and I think specifically the way that she entered like the salt trade, because she didn't really steal the salt directly, and this is what I was kind of talking about earlier. She actually kind of forces people to pay tolls based yeah, the on tax system yeah tax system on the kind of salt that they are taking because this way they don't actually have to go and transport or be in the like the business of amazon <laughs> of delivering things from place to place they, they they just want to take the collection of it the actual money be like hey you go do whatever you're gonna do just i need like 20 percent of that in my bank account right so Keeping it on her terms. Absolutely. And she gets away with this because she does have a monopoly of violence over the area. There's no one that could contest uh, Zhang Yi or Madame Zhang uh, together on the open sea. They're like just too strong, too powerful. Um, and they're able to basically create a moving state. Well, and I'm pretty sure too for the the people that are affected by this salt taxation policy are probably like, yeah, okay, I'll cut my losses, I'll pay the taxes as long as I can keep, you know, moving my goods, doing my import-export, and not get kidnapped by pirates or have all my shit taken. Absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't want to give away 20% instead of losing everything, your shirt, and possibly your life? And then 
bitching about it for months on end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. By the end of this Monopoly game, essentially, Lady Zhang had all but four out of 270 Salter ships within her realm of influence, within her taxation sphere. So, 1809, extortion money along the Pearl River Delta was the norm. And there's no way that people doing salt trade were going to get out of it, essentially. No, no. It's almost like the spice from Dune. <laughs> it's pretty insane. Actually, spice, humans actually spice, need salt baby. to live, so it's almost like It's a necessity, yeah. Yeah. Salt bay. And from this dominance, she's able to kind of create a passport system for all these salters, which the passport system is basically the taxation, but it's kind of sold in to fishing vessels or merchant ships um, in kind of her home areas of, like, Catan or Macau, and basically you would buy these passports, and if pirates like boarded your ship, you'd be like, "Hey, I have a passport." They'd be like, "Oh shit, man, I didn't mean. I'm so sorry. Uh, you want a cookie? Have a nice day." <laughs> and then they leave, and so it's kind of like the tax system, but in a more roundabout way, or kind of like a, like a train inspector coming by to see. Yeah, you tickets, tickets, tickets. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually pretty effective. It is for sure. And for those who were not part of this, like, passport system, essentially, they would be threatened. Apparently, Lady Zhang's crew would use something called a jingle, which is essentially a two and a half meter long musket that had to be operated by three pirates, or machete-tipped poles that they would swim at other ships to basically threaten them. I'm just imagining, like, Cirque du Soleil, but, like, <laughs> with knives flying at you, just, like, people, like, doing acrobats from, like, boom like poles something like that I maybe like less graceful topic. but <laughs> yeah much less graceful probably so with various tactics like their threats their politics their campaigns and taxations lady jung's crew plundered canton for three years successfully and they reaped major rewards of this pillaging of the trade hub yeah i mean it's even kind of a big trade hub to this day so it's still shows the influence of Zhang Yi and Lady Zhong on like this specific area of the world. Mm-hmm. But I would say that it's not all sunshines and rainbows, because this is where Lady Zhong will show, as a leader, her true villainy as she reaches her event horizon dun, dun, in 1808. So her power is like really illustrated here. That she's no just Blackbeard kind of like doing hit and run tactics, but actually fighting. She's smart and gaming. She's smart. She's gaming. She's taking over the board. And it's so bad. Piracy is so rampant and bad. Like, everyone has passports now. Everyone's complaining about it. It's a huge deal. Foreign powers don't like it. They're blaming the Qing government for this. Qing government can't really control it because they have a very weak navy for reasons. Anyway, they decide that they have, the Qing government decides that they have to basically, for trade relations, they have to get rid of this pirate situation. So in 1808, they send over the commander-in-chief of the province of Chekiang, and basically he was dispatched to save Canton, because it was just ruled by Lady Zhong. Like, she just (laughs) owned the entire region, so he's like, they're like, hey, 
we kind of need our territory this out? Back. Yeah. yeah. I imagine this guy's like, oh, really? Me? Like, shaking in his boots almost. Like, oh, God. No, for some reason, just knowing how, like, like guys wear it, he's probably like, I'm going to lead this to battle and glory. This will rise me up the ranks. Probably something like that. But it goes completely the opposite for him. He dies within six months and, like, loses, like, 63 ships. Good job. With, like, no losses to the Red Fleet at all. Or, I, I don't think so. Not that minimal I Minimal compared yeah. to this guy's. Yeah, age. very minimal. Like, she just annihilated him. And I think uh, when we were comparing notes, actually, it was like, you also had a similar note. I think it's the same event, actually. Yeah, I believe so. This battle that you're talking about, at least from sources I read, lasted 16 hours. And after the complete devastation of this guy's fleet, he killed himself. Yeah. Yeah, so really anime <laughs> like fashion so this kind of illustrated that uh she owns this territory she's conquered this region of the sea get out of my swamp yes this is her sphere of influence this is her navy this is her area it's a little pay the passport or your salt belong to us and she starts to move further i think she gets a bit greedy here actually this is where uh, like her villainy really starts to show as she starts to exploit some of the land regions mm-hmm. in the Pearl River Delta area. Yeah, the coastal regions from which she kind of originated and had worked with in the past were starting to be targeted by her. She's no longer just making people pay taxes on the sea or merchants pay taxes. Now she's going to where people live and asking them for protection money. And she basically does this by going outside to a, like outside of a coastal town or a fort and just start barraging it with cannon fire. And that kind of gets the attention of the town and they start trying to like aim cannons back or try to get the ships to stop. And while they're busy doing that, they're so focused on the big ships that they don't notice the small ships that uh, Lei Zhong has sent in to basically get inside of the town and take it over from the inside out to basically extort it for protection money or pillage it, opposition, normal pirate stuff, except not just boats anymore, but entire towns, almost like a conqueror. I guess that's where maybe that's why this fell apart, because she broke her own rules of never go on land. Yeah, in almost like a metaphorical way. Even if she never actually did it by herself, she like stepped over the boundary of going onto land and therefore away from her origins. Right. So the following year, in September 1809, Lady Zhang and her her boo, Cheng Pao, attacked five American schooners in Macau. They ransomed a tribute mission from Siam and killed off a whole Portuguese crew near this area, which caused Portugal to go, We want revenge. I mean, that's perfectly reasonable. I think they're probably like, okay, we've been dealing with this pirate ship for years. Uh, obviously, the Qing can't take care we're of over it. over it. Yeah, they're, they're probably like, oh my god, they're like idiotic. They must be in on this. They, they're they really, the, they're behind the pirates. That's probably what the Portuguese are thinking. Yeah. Not actually, because they actually team up with them <laughs> in the end. But I, I would be suspicious. Yeah. And in a more creative attempt, she got her men to board the Portuguese ship, take over, and torch the towns. So... It was really kind of, a lot of her operations really heavily depended on information. Uh She actually had 
information superiority almost going to every situation, making it a lot easier, a lot less men killed, having to use a lot less resources, and being able to get her way with basically trickery or thoughts, strategy, action, instead of having to go full Blackbeard and just do a few brutality. And maybe that's part of the reason for such huge success and also for kind of the wild story that's about to occur. In total, Lady Zheng's sustained campaign of terror saw over 10,000 civilians dead. And that was like just within a tiny area of Canton, right? Yeah, 16 miles essentially, 25 kilometers within Canton. So complete devastation by land and sea. And that's just a small region, not even talking about some of her other bases in like maybe Nepal or uh, Macau. Like, you know, various regions. That was just near Katana, which is pretty crazy. The numbers. Are the, like numbers. The, num- the numbers. The numbers, They mean death. Yes, lots in this case, lots, lots and lots of it. Yes. Now, we're kind of nearing the end of her tenure surprisingly seems like it could go on forever of this expansion and capture and whatnot but, but those portuguese really want their piece of flesh pissed. yeah and they Pirates- have, like better like guns at this point i think or pretty pretty serious artillery coming with them yeah firepower maybe less organization but mm-hmm. piracy was so widespread that cities were ha- starting to have a hard time feeding their populations because of all the resources that were being taken, redistributed. And so various governments around the area were like, okay, we're over this. We need to sort this out once and for all. And that's basically when a kind of dream team, I suppose, doesn't really work out <laughs> I well would say for... the unholy trinity. <laughs> yes, the unholy trinity uh, lines up. It doesn't work out well for uh, at least one of them. It works out very well for one of them. Anyway, the Chinese authorities, or the Qing dynasty at this time, basically started talking with the Portuguese advisors and be like, hey, I know you're really tired of this. You want your revenge. Uh, We want this out of our area. We basically want our sphere of influence back. And the British were kind of poking about. They had really established themselves over in India at the time and were looking for, you know, better resources into China uh, at this time, and they would eventually find that tea was very useful. So, yeah, that was great. But all of them had the problem of piracy. So they decided to combine all of their navy fleets together to make the unholy trinity of naval fleets. So now, basically, Lady Zheng was up against the British Navy, the Portuguese Navy, and the Qing Dynasty Navy, which wasn't great. But they did... had some powerhouse behind them. Yes. So, with this unholy trinity, the Qing come to the table with knowing a lot more about Lady Zhang's habits, plans, hideouts, bases, supply lines, all that sort of good stuff. So they come up with a strategy to attack her basically at the center, to go straight after the head of the snake. And that is at Lantau Island, her home base, where they plan to attack and end the fleet for all. Since the Qing have this plan, they go over to the Portuguese and like, okay, we have this plan. We just don't have necessarily the manpower or the ability guns. to do it. Yeah. So the Portuguese say, hey, we're going to hook you guys up with 100 pieces of, art- of artillery, which is a significant amount of artillery back then. 
And then they say, okay, and then we're also going to give you like a thousand men. And then y'all can kind of like build up some ships, get that all sorted out, uh, and we can go back for it. And then on top of that, there was the like some ships sent from the British Navy, some ships sent from the Portuguese Navy, and then obviously you had the Qing Navy all kind of coming together and organizing, planning on attacking Lady Zhang's home base. However, we know she's an information broker. She mm-hmm. heard about this plot through a spy network, essentially, and launched her own preemptive strike. Yes, in November of 1809, at Mon, she basically hit the Portuguese ships, kind of doing like, the same tactics, and sizably winning. However, kind of the winds didn't go in her favor. She was heavily outnumbered, heavily outgunned, and it didn't... I, it started not going very well for like, her fleet, so they had to retreat back to Macau um, in order to survive. So this is kind of where her luck starts to change a bit. I think the the seed of discourse was beginning to spread a little bit within the pirate confederacy. Not only was there amnesty starting to be offered to pirates and jobs in the military, but also like interpersonal conflicts. Really, the the different fleets essentially were no longer cooperating as they used to yeah she was really stuck back in kind of like this cove kind of area with the fleets on either side and they kind of be back and forth but they really couldn't get the winds to escape this kind of siege and they couldn't just like leave their ships behind because then they wouldn't have any navy or anything to pirate with so they were kind of stuck here and their funds were being drained slowly so it felt like kind of an inescapable situation where they were being bled dry. And the government was offering a pretty good deal. I mean, a job in the military, like amnesty for all of your crimes. You like rape and murder and pillage, like village after village after village. And then like the government's just like, hey, we're okay with this. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, no kidding. And yet she still holds off on this for a while. I think one of the straws that kind of made her see what was going on was uh, the black flag captain, Kuo Po Tai, got jealous of Chang Pao and essentially refused to help the Red Fleet during one of these standoffs between Chinese and Portuguese warships. And instead of going to aid the Red Flag, the black flag captain actually attacked them in retaliation for lack of help. And shortly thereafter, the Black Flag captain decided, oh, I'm going to take up this offer for amnesty and I'm going to stop being a pirate and join their military instead. Yeah, but I mean, that's perfectly reasonable. because It is. Because it's like 1810 by this point. So it's no longer like 1809. Like it's gone all the way into 1810. You're being offered amnesty, not gunned down, not killed, not taken, and like a job. It's not a bad deal, but so that's why like the they turn because they're not going to last forever like this. Yeah, there's it doesn't seem like there's a good way out of this unless they like, a stroke of luck comes their way, and it doesn't seem to be. Well, maybe this was their stroke of luck, the amnesty. Right, and also I think this goes to show some of Lei Zhang's ability to be flexible, dynamic, and adaptable in an ever changing situation. Because instead of just being like holding strong and getting and going with, down with the ship <laughs> and going down with the ship, she kind of changes like uh, like Ching Pao's kind of like mindset and like also like the direction that they should take. 
Because at this point, they are so big and they've been operating almost as a government. Wouldn't just joining the government not be that much of a change? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, kind of thinking about it. You'll be attacked way less if you have this new alliance, essentially. But that's not enough for the Queen of the Pirates. Come on, are you kidding me? Lady Zhang gave up her piracy in style. Absolutely. She fucking slayed by nine. We'll get to it. She absolutely owned everyone in the situation. She came in, she basically surrendered herself, but she surrendered herself knowing full well that she would get a pardon already. But she didn't surrender herself just to get the deal. No, she came to fucking negotiate. <sighs> and somehow, through some bizarre match, I think she blackmailed the negotiator. I think she blackmailed him. Absolutely. Because she showed up and she's like, hey... I want everything that y'all said, except also I want to keep all the treasure. Y'all can have the ships, y'all can have the weapons and whatnot, but I want all of the treasure. I want the full pardon. I basically want to keep some of the ships. So I said surrender all the ships, but she was like, actually, I want to keep some of the ships. And then she was given the aristocratic title of Lady Zheng, instead of being simply known as uh, Zheng Yi Zhao, or Zheng Yi's wife. So she actually got a proper aristocratic title. So someone from the low birth of a region to a discriminated against ethnic background to being an aristocrat is a pretty dramatic change. Absolutely. And she'll get basically all of this. At first, they're kind of like, no, I don't think so. And then, like, she's like, can we really let the pirates keep ships? At, like, how? At first, they're like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. But then they actually thought it through. I mean, as part of this, like, her negotiating, also Chang Pao did. And they realized, oh, these pirates know the seaways the best. They know how to fucking fight. We should actually just make them part of our navy. So they gave Cheng Pao the title of lieutenant colonel, and they said, okay, you can actually keep some of these ships. We want you to be part of our navy because you know how to do it best. And that was basically the deal that Kai struck is they went from being criminals to, like, going professional. It's almost kind of like how, like, the United States was treating, like, hackers, basically, in like, the late 90s and <laughs> yeah, like, early 2000s. We're going to hire you to work for us yeah it seems like the best jobs got uh people got was like after going to prison for hacking like ton of hackers during that time period they're just like hey you're too skilled to be stuck in a cell want to come work for the government or like catch me if you can yeah so lady jung does this for her pirates essentially like she negotiates for herself of course but also gets most of her crews off scotch free and they spend the rest of their life no longer being pirates, but policing piracy, which is like a surprising turn of events. But if you think it through, it makes sense. And there's also this really fun, compelling story that's probably very fictional, but like absolutely makes like she puts like a je ne sais quoi or a bow tie on the story. Is it's said that the emperor basically wanted uh, Lady Zhang to bow before him as a, like a show of submission yeah. of the piracy to like the emperor and to the state. And it's said that initially Lady Zhang would not do this. She would not lower herself to this. 
But since this was a special occasion, and she was a clever person, she decided to actually affirm her marriage to Jing Pao under the state. And so when they took their vows to each other, technically they were bowing in front of the emperor, and she was able to bow and take care of that condition without ah. showing submission, but rather partnership to her spouse. So I thought that was a really fun story, clever story of kind of, you know, changing the narrative in more of a style that I think Lady Zhang would appreciate. Yeah, finding the loophole being like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you also forgot to mention, but when she initially came into harbor to set the conditions of the amnesty, she took the entire fleet with all of their colorful flags blowing in the wind, and I think that's just such a picturesque image. Like that's some Jack Sparrow esque dramatics. That especially if you look at the junkships they were basically sailing at the time, mm-hmm. it would look gorgeous, gorgeous and horrifying. <laughs> so she. Retires from piracy in style, marries her adoptive sweetheart, and essentially goes back to Canton to raise her children and continue on some shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, she has a ton of money now, mm-hmm. so she's all in the legal business of racketeering. She has gambling houses all across Hong Kong. Um, One also doubled as a brothel. Yeah, and I, I like to imagine kind of her life uh, as a serious movie, probably like a like, if you took the Napoleon movie, you just made it better. Uh, Napoleon's an amazing person. Uh, one of my favorite, absolute historical figures. But that movie. Oh. Anyway, I imagine her starting in a brothel, kind of as a very young adult. And then we follow her entire journey. But basically, before we follow her entire journey, we see her kind of respecting, like, you know, the brothel owner, who's perhaps uh, some type of mentor figure. The matriarch, figure. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after, like, shit blows up and her husband kidnaps her, you know, normal stuff. She basically ends in the same place as where, like, kind of like the movie would begin. But now she's the one being looked up to as the one in charge of the brothel. She is the figure of wisdom, and everything has kind of come full circle in like a surprisingly wholesome way for a eighteenth, nineteenth-century pirate lady. Yeah, unfortunately, history is not like a movie, and she would actually see basically. Her sphere of the world kind of fall into disarray, as in 1839, the Opium Wars picked up. Remember those British in that evil triad? Turns out, they were just using everyone all along. Who would have thought the British would ever pit people against each other and divide and conquer? So, yeah. The Qing government wasn't having the best time fighting the British and their whole trade war and whatnot, and they would actually seek Lei Zhang's uh, counsel in naval warfare in 1839. But she was kind of in retirement at this age, I would say. Yeah. She was kind of done with the whole thing. Been there, seen it, done it all before. And I don't think that she was able to have much influence on the war since it was so beginning, and she didn't really get to see the conclusion. Yeah, because in 1844, Lady Zhong died at the ripe old age of 69. Nice. I mean, for a courtesan, what a perfect age. Exactly. So, crazy life. Absolutely. Wild stories, but surprisingly, like, wholesome in the weirdest way. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really hard to tell if, uh, 
our villain today is an anti-villain or an anti-hero. It's quite difficult to distinguish. I think looking from a modern lens, she'd probably still be considered a villain with the human trafficking and decapitations and stuff. But the there's trading, there's yeah. some really interesting elements to her story that make you like kind of want to root for her. Uh, actually, the wor- the worst one, taxes. Ah, oh. oh, yeah, oh. putting bureaucracy in piracy. Hey guys, April's coming up. Just reminding everyone. Out March there. for certain other people. Oh, okay. Yeah, that too. You can also get extensions. We would we would drop an ad to IRS.finance, but they've been seized. Yes. <laughs> well, Speaking of trading information, our threshold for today's villain is literally the trading of information and brokering. Kind of going off of blackmail, of like learning things in brothels. Learning dirty little secrets. Kind of like how an altered carbon, uh, the main character's sister operates her character arc follows a very similar narrative with powerful people and gaining power through that method yeah especially in a a place that has almost no rules and it's just poverty stricken and just entirely brutal of might makes right lady Zhang's mentor i think at face value would be her husband Zheng Yi, the legendary pirate but i also think there was a lot of cultural influence for her being brought up on the water that really shaped her pirate codes that is not mentioned nearly as much as uh, being a mentor for her. And I think that kind of ties into some of the temptations and motivations of like the power and the money, but at like kind of like a very core, almost just a sense for stability and prosperity amongst her family, not only her family, but like kind of her culture, her region. Her people. Yeah, exactly. It was basically that the government wasn't doing its job, and so she did it for them. Exactly. Even if it, like, the means were uh, pretty suspicious to get to the good ends that she was seeking. I mean, most governments' means can be suspicious too, but that's that's another story. Yeah, really, uh... Nail your feet down on some of those points. Her revelation death is pretty straightforward. I think her husband dying was would be the obvious one. Being led... smited out of nowhere. <laughs> it's like a part of her died, probably. Yeah, but it led to her rebirth because that's how she got to becoming the captain the f- and expanding the fleet. And then she really reaches her true event horizon when she basically preemptively attacks the Portuguese ships and basically declares, motherfuckers, I'll take you all. Yeah, which kind of leads to the downfall of the piracy cohesion and the confederacy. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say her atonement resolution is probably, I guess, changing her mind in a way? Yeah, brokering that deal with the opposition to work towards stopping piracy, but in a way making it so that her fleet's had a better outcome in the end. It's almost like the entire thing just stopped by uh, Lady Zhang being like, hey, everyone changed their mindset. And then everyone just did. It started with that too. So yeah, yeah. She's very convincing. Very convincing. A real life reality vendor. <laughs> and obviously her legacy like lives on today in like Lots show of media. A ton of media. You see her influence in Our Flag Means Death, Doctor Who, Pirates of the Caribbean, At World's End, 
Um, there's even elements of anime Black Lagoon kind of thrown in there. But yeah, the whole modern. South China Sea environment with modern piracy. Yeah. The kind of poverty-stricken sex worker to queen of the underworld story that is portrayed in so much of our kind of noir media that mm, we see today. Fair, fair point. Yeah, I mean, like, it follows, like, the same kind of, like, yeah. plot lines of a lot of times. And although she's not talked about nearly as much as your Blackbeard or your even fictional characters like Barbosa, she does remain to be the most successful pirate in history. I have never heard a pirate that's commanded so many people and such a vast region. Yeah, you hear like about like people like Edward Prince, which seemed like a, if I remember correctly, some noble guy that was just prancing around with ships and kept getting them stolen, saying he was pirate. And then you have over here, Lady Zhang over here, like, 70,000 people, orders of government, taxation systems. Like, hell, I, I thought she was about to put in plumbing next. <laughs> well, as an archetype, what do you think Lady Zhang would be classified as? I would say that she was probably be... Like you were asking earlier, is she an anti-villain or an anti-hero? I think she's kind of the classic villain mastermind because she is brilliant and ruthless. And she, I, I guess, maybe not the full extent of the classic villain because she's not, like, making diabolical plans in direct opposition to a single protagonist. She's just kind of ruthless overseeing it for her gains. So I think there's some of the classic villain mastermind in her. I think that would probably be the most accurate I the only other thing I can think of is kind of like the criminal narrative, kind of like the heist where it's in it for like the money, the power. Yeah, that's like the baseline motivations. Yeah, kind of just normal criminal villain stuff. <laughs> but also say that she's kind of machine like in some instances, but that might just be kind of part of her mastermind sense or you know vibe. Kind of like the you know the lifeless, emotionless, cold, calculating. Well, that might also be because we don't have many documented accounts from like of her perspective really we hear from the the people who were captured on her ships but we don't actually have any writings from her to know what she was like day to day yeah and i know we've been uh kind of like a little bit loosey-goosey like, loosey-goosey it's more of a paper cut uh ton of work coming down the pipe right now but anyway a lot of this stuff can also be attributed to uh jean Guy initially and then also like, a lot of it to bao but it seems that, according to a lot of different historians' opinions and whatnot, or mostly my opinion on articles of other people's historians' opinions, that sort of thing, where they believe that really it was Lady Zhang who was the brains the entire time, and that her husband, child husband people were uh, basically just the enactors, the enforcers of her master plans. Yeah. And she was really the one doing all the, the, the real captain. Like you said earlier, she was organizing and they were plundering. Yes. Like, you have to have both to be a pirate, essentially. But that would make her the mastermind. Exactly. And not, like, the, uh... Henchman? Or, yeah. Yeah, basically. What about her alignment? I think she would be lawful evil because of all the bureaucracy she put into place mm-hmm. and then she really uses that bureaucracy to kind of like you know decapitate people she hones it to organize this 
anarchical chaos in an impoverished region to bring some kind of prosperity to her people and make a system work. Like, she inflicts her will on the people and achieves power through that way. I guess you could also say that maybe she's not lawful evil because she never followed the law in the first place because there was never a law well, around her. She made the law. She became the law. There was never a law around her in the first place. So that right. might actually make her more closer, like, in nature to a neutral evil where she's more kind of going after it out of a selfish desire. I mean, she is a pirate, after all. Even though, like, kind of like a semi-quasi-government organization slash pirate, she's still a pirate, and she's still hurting people, not following the rules, not following, like, whatever governments have to say about it, and she's creating her own. So maybe her nature is necessarily neutral evil, but then the side that her fleet sees is lawful evil, and perhaps if the culture would have continued, they'd have not morphed inside of the government. Maybe that lawful evil nature would have continued into more leaders in the future. Hmm. And she could have only been the first neutral evil as like the founding kind of nature. I could kind of see that, yeah. So she set it up, and then her surrounding fleets are following that lawful evil. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, as, as she and Bao are the captains, basically, all of the other fleets are, like, her henchmen following the law. So I think that that's a fair assessment. Also, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to get into uh, some of her tactics in case we have any aspiring pirates out there in the listening audience. One Piece fans, I'm looking at you. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in kind of the area of 1807 to 1810, when she was kind of at the height of her power... Her main strategy was to basically ambush squadrons because a lot of the junkers under her control were very nimble, very flexible, could really get in and out of places really quickly. She did have some warships, but like her warship, it wasn't like the ones that would make long journeys. It was a lot more small tactics like you would see and with speedboats in modern kind of ambush squadrons. Yes. And she established a squadron between the shipping lanes of, uh, Team Pai and Kintong, and held a, like, another fleet in the strategic island of uh, Nacho. So that's kind of, she was strategically like, moving pieces like around the board in some sort of sense. And she knew where the shipping lanes were. So that's how she was able to get that overtake of like all of those salt ships, is because she specifically targeted that salt shipping lane and just made a monopoly on. Yeah, those spheres of influence, like we mentioned earlier, this whole region was divided into six, and then you subsect that based on the shipping passages, so it's very strategic. And she had multiple backup plans, as you can see from the two different fleets being in different locations, because if one fleet got in trouble, there's uh, there's always the other fleet to come in. Send in backup! Right. Uh, So if they were forced into what later happened, uh, when they had to join up, because basically they were fighting a force so much bigger that they had to team together so they didn't have backup force. But if it was a smaller engagement, if they had got trapped in that cove, they would have called in their backup fleet to basically come in and save them, get them out of the siege. But in the end, they just happened to be outgunned by three nations and still walked away with treasure and... With their heads on their shoulders. And the title of, uh, like, aristocracy. Yeah. Wow. Respect. Mm. Also... Uh, we kind of talked earlier how she gave out the passports and whatnot. More often how she did this is she would kind of like 
get the pirates to board the ships, not take any of the goods, um, basically kind of forcing them to pay tolls by like going like, hey, let's go on this together. And then once they deliver their salt and get paid, then that's when they actually collect and they come back and that's when they like have their toll. So they're not actually getting into that whole business. They're doing it a lot smarter by going to like, a meta level above it mm-hmm. of like kind of moving the numbers or like around the board, so to speak. Yeah, you called it earlier the monopoly of violence, but a lot less destructive than one would think for a typical pirate fleet. And a lot of her tactics do come from information, so she's able to kind of strike in silence of the night behind someone's back and get out of there before anyone knows that something has gone awry. Hmm. Kind of relying on a little bit of luck, but mostly just... Opportunity and planning. Yeah, the house always wins is how she's thinking. And it's just incredible to kind of watch. So I guess it's a combination of her strategy, her charisma and organization, as well as a lot of the mythology kind of surrounding her. The, mm-hmm. Some of the hearsay really contributes to her overall legendary status. As, For sure, a legend. Yeah, as, as a pirate, as a villain, she is notorious, and I think rightfully so. And has shaped the region to like this very day. It's really impressive. With the hand that she was dealt, she was able to turn it, like basically play it, pretty perfectly by like employing a variety of strategies and stratagems i suppose what are we gonna do tomorrow night same thing we do every night pinky try to take over the world speaking of which have you implied any strategies or stratagems to get our passports up and running for free thinking this month okay maybe not the passports for free thinking but i did help contribute to some propaganda oh i have been spreading the word of the world domination committee not only uh on feedspot because you know we're number 10 but i also infiltrated a communist organization to bring mm. food to the people of the community, but also, of course, the good word of the World Domination Committee. I started volunteering at a soup kitchen that I used to eat at. I see, I see. So when are you going to implement your full Pol Pot's nefarious actions? <laughs> no, I'm not going to go Pol Pot on this. I'm going to give people soup, and I'm going to be like, listen to the podcast. You know what? That's villainous enough for me. Speaking of soups... I was actually experimenting with a particular type of soup, a very weird soup. Good soup? Good soup. Interesting soup. Confusing soup, absolutely. (laughs) I was experimenting with love potions for no particular reason. I mean, it was Valentine's Day. No particular reason or incredibly vague ambitions. Anyway, I happened to spill one, Um, so that was quite unfortunate. And messy. Yes, very messy. But... Luckily, I was the only one around, so let me just say, I have great taste. If you would like to be a part of the World Domination Committee and love me, I mean Lane, I mean me, sorry, I can't control it, it's the potion, follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcasts on and leave us a review. And help us get past number 10 to number 1. Infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. Send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. Stalk us on Insta at worlddominationcommittee. See what shenanigans I'm up to, which is not really much. The block still is under construction. I haven't done It's been crazy. Perpetually under construction. The love potion really threw me out of whack. It's really hard with mirrors now. 
Anyway, see what I'm up to at trend.tech. T-R-Y-N-N dot T-E-C-H. Proliferate the gay agenda by reading what we do in the closet on Cutbox. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by... Bad Baby. Productions.